Chad and Jay Mansbridge here, lead pastors of Bayside Church International, based here on the south coast of South Australia. Our great passion as a church is to help people to know Jesus and to demonstrate His love, truth and life in everything that we do. We hope you enjoy today's message. speak on this today is not just to open a conversation and say that it is okay to speak about issues around grief and suffering. Because there are a few things that I have learned, as much as I'm not an expert on the issue. I have learned that grief and suffering are something that's important to acknowledge and recognise as a very natural and normal part of the human condition. I have learned that suffering is a universal language. Every culture, every demographic, rich or poor, every skin colour, every language and every age group throughout all time and history share the language of suffering. Everyone understands that in some degree. What I have learned is that suffering always seems to present the opportunity for the light of God, rise and shine, the life of God from something that was dead and the love of God to shine through. I do know that that there is always in suffering the opportunity for God's love, light and life to shine. I also know that in suffering that our responses can largely determine whether suffering produces bitter people or better people. Come on. <laughs> suffering itself does not do either that our responses in the suffering can determine whether someone emerges bitter or someone emerges better, and I have seen that. And I also have learned that some of the most admired men and women in history, Anne Frank, Nelson Mandela, fill in the gaps. Some of the most admired men and women in history are people who have come through times of suffering. And there's something about this story that resonates in the hearts of people to know how much you can admire someone who shares their story in those situations. So at 4.30 this morning, I decided that I wasn't going to preach today. And instead, I'm just going to chat. So that's why I've got a stool. I'm going to sit down, and we're just going to have a talk. It was probably three years ago that, um, well, for about 10 years, I was the main organiser um, with the local churches down here at planning a church together event, you know, that happens. It had happened for history, it's basically stopped now, it's time and run. But uh, for about 10 years I was in charge of that. We met in the tent in the middle of town and had guest speakers come. We usually would make a deal of that. And about three years ago we'd hooked up Danny Gugliamucci to come and speak. And we'd set up a whole weekend with him on Saturday morning, men's breakfast, to Sunday, Sunday night. He was going to be here in our church meeting on the Sunday, and the day before he was due to come, he gave me a call, and he said, Chad, I'm sitting in the hospital, my son has just been struck by lightning, and I'm so sorry, I just had to pull a pin on this weekend. And, of course, uh, I understand that. <laughs> and so that began a journey for him, and I only mentioned him for this reason. About a year later, I heard a message of him sharing, when he was able to share publicly some of his journey through the loss of Chris, who was my age, four kids, youth pastor, at a church camp when he was struck by lightning and died. 
And um, he said four things. He gave us sort of a, not a four-step process, but four things that he'd learned or a process that he had gone through yeah, uh, over that year. And he said basically his grief journey looked like this. God had taught him what it meant to sit, stand, sing, and then serve. Sit, stand, sing, and serve. And I heard that and I th- thought... That sounds like a chat sermon. <laughs> That's four S's. I could do that. And so I just thought, I just want to do share in and around that uh, today as we just talk about the issue of shining through suffering. You know, sometimes when I sit with people in really raw moments, um, it's clear to me that of many cultures of earth, many cultures have learned over time how to grieve well and how to come through suffering well us Westerners are probably the worst of the lot on knowing how to do it well. And uh, I'm actually really grateful to be a Westerner. I think that the Renaissance, the Reformation, the Industrial Revolution, scientific discoveries and all the things that have come out of that have produced a pretty good society. I'm very glad and very grateful that I'd say the majority of what's come out of the West has been good. But one of the things that we're not that good at is grieving. And many ancient cultures and cultures that have been around for a long time have developed over time ways and patterns that they know works that helps when people go through times of mourning and grief. And one of those cultures is the Jewish culture, uh, a very ancient culture as, as we kind of know. Okay. And uh, one of the things that they've developed is a bit of a pattern that they go through. I'm not going to go into details of it, but just to highlight a few things, particularly in this area, firstly, of sitting. If someone dies in a Jewish family, those who are immediately connected uh, between that and the burial, which is normally three to four days later, basically do nothing but weep and lament. That's their job. And there's an understanding in the community that their job, that is a time of weeping and lamenting and crying. That's their job. One thing that's really good about it is that in tiny communities, and you can imagine this in village life, being more useful than what we have today, um, is that none of the funeral planning is done by those who are mourning. The families, extended families, look after that so that they know those close people, their job, only job, is to weep and to lament for those three days. And as someone who does funerals, let me just say, I know the extra stress that that can cause on families in the time when they should be weeping, or close ones, to know that decisions and discussions have to be made. I'm very happy. I came from a family. We're talking about things like funeral arrangements uh, was part of the course in our family life because it meant that when it was time, things were a little bit easier. We already knew what to do. <laughs> Point is, in those three days, that's the only job that person has. They then enter into a time of what they call shiva, simply means seven. Very Jewish, isn't it? And that's basically a week of time committed where that person actually doesn't leave the house. Uh, They sit there and the family come to them. They cook for them, they clean, they are surrounded by people regularly and their job, again, is to sit in the grief and allow that grief to play its process. Now I want to say very carefully, I'll get up and say this so that you know I'm preaching now. <laughs> what I'm saying, I'm not issuing a prescription of how things should be. I'm 
having a description of how it happens to be for a particular culture. Okay, so please don't take these numbers and go. Chad's saying this is what it should be. I'm just saying this is what it looks like for some cultures. And so, <laughs> and uh, and so they had that that set time where they just they they uh, as I said just sit there in the grief and this. Um, I guess avoids the thing that we know can happen during times of pain. And we've all heard the phrase fight or flight. Some people during the fright, okay, either react by fighting, this is not happening, I'm resisting, this is, you know, react with a fight or react in the flight, which is I'm out of here, I'm checking out. The idea of sitting is to know I'm, as it were, grounding or acknowledging that this is real and that this is what is happening at the moment. The purpose is to literally sit in the pain, both alone at times, but also alongside others, and to sit in that state. And many of us have experienced that within those periods of what it's like to either sit there yourself or to sit there alongside other people. Some of us um, have been the first responders, as it were, uh, in those emotional situations. They can be very raw, they can be very real, but they are very needed. And uh, I actually thought just this morning, you know, if, if at times you see this will never happen, so I'll use Malcolm as an example because this will never happen with him. If every at time you see Malcolm maybe a little bit distracted, not as polite as normal, maybe he ignored you a little bit in the foyer. Oh, there he is, right at the front. Dang, I thought you were here. Uh, keep in mind, some people are first responders. And you just never know what type of situation that person has sat with in that particular week. I noticed this in one of our chaplains recently. I thought, what are they? Notice, you know, they're in and shine. And I was like, they, they seem a little bit distant today. And how are you doing? How's your week? And she said, well, I had my first opportunity at school this week to sit with a six-year-old with the mum and helped the mum explain for the first time that that six-year-old's father had just ended his life that week. And I'm like, okay. I can understand that. You just don't know sometimes what people have been through in a week. Again, it's the end and shine, isn't it? It's the notice. And just be aware that sometimes the tenderness of those moments can affect uh, quite a few people. This is sometimes what we need to do. Sit. Just sit with people in those times. And I mentioned Jewish tradition of all the other cultures in the world because, of course, um, much of their tradition stems from what we, we see in the scripture. We see mourning happen from as early on as Abraham, who mourned for Sarah and wept for her. Um, further on, we see Joseph, who mourned for seven days for Jacob. I think that's kind of the first instance that that happens. Uh, on and on we see fasting playing a part with uh, many of you have read the passage sackcloth and ashes you remember kind of reading that so this is basically they dressed up for mourning they'd wear a thin black cloth a rough black cloth and they just sit in that for days because that's what they're doing they're sitting in the grief uh, in that moment mourning their loss and what comes after that is songs of lament uh, many of the songs, the psalms, some of them are individual songs of lament. Remember David, when King Saul died, and the first thing he did was he just sung a song, a song of sorrow that was for him personally, oh father, my father, what he had lost. Um, as tradition goes on, entire books of the Bible are dedicated 
to funeral songs. Do you know what Lamentations is? <laughs> the book of Lamentations? It's not a bunch of emotional, dramatic songs like David often did. They're like acrostic poetry. Acrostic poetry basically means the first line starts with an A, okay? The second line starts with a B, C, D, E, F, or whatever the Hebrew equivalent is, all right? They are planned, they are planned. <laughs> Told you we were just chatting. They are, they are planned prayers that a community can grieve together in. As we grieve together, we lament together. That's what the book of Lamentations is. It's poetry used to lament. The idea, of course, is just to be able to sit in that lamentation, as it were, and go through that purpose and do it well. The whole thing sounds unpleasant, but the principle is this. The first stage of true, genuine suffering, grief, mourning, is just to sit. Is just to accept the fact, and acknowledge the fact, and to give permission as a community and to yourself to sit in that pain. Permission to do nothing but sit in the grief. And of course, we have a challenge ourselves today in our cultural context, because that's not understood particularly well. But it's something, a principle, I think, that has great merit. And while it is thousands of years old, psychologists and psychiatrists today agree. <laughs> and kind of science has caught up with the fact that this is actually a very good thing to do. After that seven-step process, seven-day uh, set period, they go into another 30-day um, period of, of grief or mourning, sort of the next step in the process, where it's not so much about sitting, but about finding their feet again and learning to stand. And um, this means that they go about their own house duties again. If they work, they get back into the workforce. And basically, as some of you know, the sitting... Basically, all sometimes the strength you have in those 30 days is just to stand. Um, you're not even walking through life. You're barely shuffling sometimes with the, the numbness of not knowing what's going on. This tends to be the second uh, part in that process. For the Jews, um, although social activities, um, although normal activities commence, social activities are not allowed to commence for that person. They will not attend social events, and the community knows that. The community knows they won't attend parties. They're not going to go to the bar mitzvah of their cousin, even if it was planned that week, because it's not good for them to be in celebratory environments. Yet, their job is just to stand in that time and to the best that they can shuffle through life and to the best that they can to try to find their feet again. How many of you kind of know what I'm talking about in that you just barely have the strength to stand and to get through the day. Some ways, some of us particularly, those of us who are more physically minded, we can accept this with things like surgery. You have surgery and you're bedridden for six days. Done. But you know that for the next six weeks there's weaknesses in your body. You can't resume all normal activities. Well the same is true with emotional pain. When you've had your heart wrenched out, <laughs> as it were emotionally speaking. You might be bedridden for a while but please understand, there's still a period where the, all you can muster the strength to do is to stand, and that is okay. Just getting by on the day-to-day -day duties. At some stage, and these are Danny's words, as I said earlier, there comes the time, and this is where the hope begins to rise to the surface again, where the life is not only characterised by sorrow, 
but where a song begins to return. And there are days, there are moments that are more good than hard. <laughs> most of the first part of the process today is mostly hard. The next stage is where actually I feel a song returning. Now, maybe sing is not the best word because as a practice, to sing through those first two processes is a good thing. If the strength at all can be mustered, it is good to choose to sing. But by this word, we simply mean that without thinking about it, the instinct of singing, the lifting of the heart, the spring in the step tends to return. Life has that sense of a song about it that's returning. And that is obviously a great phase to be entered into. Not that singing is necessarily a decision, but an involuntary returning of joy again to the heart where people start looking forward to tomorrow legitimately. I'm actually not just doing one day at a time now. I'm actually, I am looking forward to something coming up. That is a new phase in that grieving process, the season of singing where laughter returns and joy is starting to be found in things. In fact, what we could even do is call this sing, stand and spring. You know, <laughs> new life just starts to spring up and begin to emerge again. And then lastly, Danny, in his story anyways, in this framework, is he says, the last thing I found I had the strength to return to again was to serve. To actually use the pain and the experience that I had and the restoration through that to be able to serve other people. And maybe this is where Rise and Shine, to stay with the theme, really comes in because that light that we've allowed, that God has shone into us, maybe through others, even in the darkest of times, glimmers, maybe remote glimmers, that light seems, seems to emerge again, and that light can actually then be shared and to be used to serve other people. Because the other thing I've learned about suffering, in the little that I know, and the absolutely inadequate job I'll do today in even talking about the subject, one thing I know is that whatever suffering we have been through, we're not the first. And we definitely won't be the last. And in the sitting, we are the only ones. <laughs> in the sitting period, it's like no one knows this. But the reality is, and we'll come to understand it later, that we won't, we're not the first. We won't be the last. And others, at some point, in the service point, we will be able to find solace and benefit from our story if we come through the process well. There are four friends who carried Jesus, carried a paralyzed man to Jesus. Four friends that carried their crippled friend into the presence of Jesus. The reason they had to carry him, the reason they broke a hole in the roof, the reason they lowered their friend down to Jesus is because he was too weak to do it on his own. And sometimes we are the friend who's on the mat. We're just too weak to do anything on our own. Yet, for the most part, our hope is to live as people who serve. Our hope is to live as those who are the mat carriers for others when they go through these similar struggles. Uh, yesterday, I had the great privilege of holding a memorial service for a couple who've 
really been part of this church for the last three or four years. They have a double life. They live half in Adelaide and, and half here, so we haven't seen them much this year. But um, 11 weeks ago, they uh, suffered a stillborn. This is um, Ben and Ben and Kate, 35 weeks, and a stillbirth. And that is one of the most tragic and devastating, difficult challenges to go through. I was privileged to be invited to be with them uh, in the hospital soon after the, the day of the, when it happened. They had the memorial service yesterday. And Kate shared a story how uh, within a week of getting home, she just barely standing, <laughs> shuffling through life, um, sent a text message to say, listen, I'd love to come to Busy Bucks today. I think it's good to come to Playgroup. I think it's good to get out of the house. It was the first time she would be in a baby-rich environment and she knew it was going to be tough. And that day, as God would have it, she was able to meet someone who was in a stage of their life where they were able to serve, who 10 years down the track or whatever it was, was able to say, I understand, I've been there. And uh, they developed a great friendship and both with the wife to wife and father to father, uh, or husband to father, they came alongside that couple. And uh, that is a highly commendable and beautiful thing and the ability to be able to serve other people because whatever you have or are going through, if you're not, you won't be the first and you won't be the last. And to see that happen in our church environment to me is a precious and uh, a beautiful thing. <coughs> I said a few weeks ago when I had the opportunity to share my first time in this series um, about a story of a boy who went on a trip to Europe with his family and as Jay and I did this year, visited a lot of cathedrals. And as he shared with his teacher about the cathedrals he visited, the teacher said, well, why don't you tell us what you've learned about the saints? It was a Catholic school, so that was important. What, what did you learn about the saints, Billy, when you travelled through all the cathedrals? And he said, well, I learned that the saints are those whom the light shines through. That's who the righteous are, the saints are means a righteous person. They're the ones who God's light shines through. And one of the most beautiful ways light can shine through, um, what are these things called again? Stained glass windows, yeah. Is the beauty of light shining through a mosaic where that glass has not been perfectly cut, but that glass is a mosaic of broken, shattered pieces that have been glued together. And it is possible to shine through suffering and it is possible to be a shining light of beauty for others through suffering. And one of the things that makes it beautiful <coughs> is because we, like a, a bunch of broken glass pieces that God has brought together, God can shine through and form a beautiful, beautiful mosaic for others. It's an interesting, and fascinating view of what Christian community can look like. Of people who through suffering allow God's life, love and life, which never change, to have his way. And the people who are committed to not allowing suffering to make us bitter, but will allow suffering to work its process that we may become better and may eventually be able to serve others. I said to Mao, is it possible that at the last minute you could t 
teach the music team a, a song that's 150 years old. Lord, <laughs> 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 now, yeah. <laughs> that was old as you, John. Um, 150 years. <laughs> Why don't you guys come now? Get yourself get your ready. I wrote this down yesterday for the memorial uh, for Ben and Kate. I'll just read it out today. It is well with my soul. The song's author is Horatio G. Spafford, and he lived with his wife Anna and four daughters in Chicago in the mid-19th century. He was a successful lawyer, a businessman, a real estate investor, an elder in the Presbyterian Church, and in that part of his life, all was well with Horatio, until the year 1871, when tragedy befell them, they lost their four-year-old son to scarlet fever. And then a few months later, the great Chicago fire saw them lose most of their business, their assets and real estate, followed just two years later by the financial crash, some of us know as the Panic of 1873. Financially, they lost everything in that two-year period. In need of some respite and rest, the couple planned a holiday in Europe. But last minute before boarding the boat in New York, Horatio had a business opportunity arise, and so he sent his wife and four daughters on the ship saying, listen, I'll join you soon. You start the holiday, I'll be there, and I'll see you shortly. Four days into their Atlantic crossing, the vessel, can you believe this, in the open sea, collided with another ship in the dead of night on my birthday. Within just 12 minutes, the boat completely sunk. Horatio's wife, Anna, somehow survived. Miraculously, she was found unconscious on a piece of the ship's debris by someone on the other boat. But tragically, all four of their daughters were among the 226 who were drowned. And one of them, Anna recalls, being taken literally, physically taken from her arms. The names of their daughters were Annie, Margaret Lee, Bessie and Tanetta. Nine days later, while in safe in Wales, Anna wired her husband, sent her, sent him, sent him a messenger, you know, text message, and he boarded the first available ship and began the crossing himself. Four days into his journey, the captain said, come here, Horatio called him down to his cabin and said, the best of my knowledge, and I've worked out the coordinates as best as I can, but I think it's right here. We are now crossing where the ship sunk and your daughters were last seen. And apparently it was there, at that moment, over the Atlantic Sea where he's lost his daughters, that Horatio walked out onto the deck and seeing the waves just billowing, constant, crashing, never ending waves hitting the ship he thought about the grief that seemed relentless in that time and he wrote a poem at that moment a man who knew what it was to have peace like a calming river attend him and now a man who knew what it was to have grief and sorrow like billowing waves just constantly rolling and yet he said, whatever my lot, whichever stage I'm in, 
somehow in his mercy, God has taught me to say this. It is well with my soul. There is somehow a peace that doesn't make sense. There is an anchor of hope. One day I'll see my girls again. But somehow I can muster, even if it's just out of the side of my mouth, a whisper that says, it is well. It is well. And that's what this song's about. That's at least where it came. Horatio was a man, as you'll see in the lyrics, that had faith that day because he was well established on a love of God that had been demonstrated for him 2,000 years ago. Whatever he was experiencing at the moment, he knew that love 2,000 years ago has not changed. He was also a man that was able to look forward and say, because of my confidence in what God has done in the past, and I have a confident hope for a future of glory ahead of me. In the now, I can say that it is well. It is well with my soul. I hope you've enjoyed today's message. Remember to check us out at baysidechurch.org.au. And of course, if you're ever in the area, please pop in and say good day.